What is philanthropy? Donations to good causes. The love of mankind. Preventing and solving social problems. Six-figure gifts. Giving of your time, talent, and treasure. If you ask a million people, you will get a million answers. And that is the root of many of the problems inherent in the philanthropic sector. If we are not on the same page about what it is, how can we expect to move forward towards a common goal? Hi, my name is Monique and I am a BIPOC fundraiser with over 15 years of experience. I am Valerie and I'm a white fundraiser with 10 years of experience. Each month, our goal is to dive into different aspects of the philanthropic sector from our varying perspectives to discuss how the sector can move forward beyond our current state to get on the same page and truly make a difference in our organizations and communities. Whether you're a nonprofit leader, a foundation manager, or a donor looking to evolve your practice, we're here to offer insights and actionable advice to help you move beyond philanthropy. How you doing? It's been a crazy couple of weeks in in this sector. I don't I don't know about you, but there's been a lot going on in terms of fundraising, in terms of DEI, in terms of just what the role of people are. Like yeah. what like what is our role within organizations? What is our role as consultants? What is our role to the community? What is that role and responsibility? So I think it's very timely. Um, as we talk about today's topic, which is the role of a fundraiser. So I think when we, or when I think about the role of a fundraiser, it's really evolved over the last 10 years or so. Um, Mm -hmm. When I first started in the industry, I was like, oh, we're just here to like get money from rich people. That's my job. My (laughs) job is to get money from rich people and clearly have evolved way beyond that and don't necessarily look at that as my role anymore. But I Mm -hmm. think for folks who are not in philanthropy or not in nonprofit, that's what they think. Like, that's what they think my job is. They think my job is schmoozing with rich people. And that is definitely not my day today. I don't know about you. you know, I think about when I first started focusing solely on fundraising, when I went from being an ED to a fundraiser. And uh, one of the conversations I had with staff, you know, I was, I was on program site. And part of it was I was just trying to learn the program but also like I went pretty consistently and, you know, the comment that was said to me was, you know, the last, the last DOD, like she never came to the program. I'm like, what? Like, yeah. Like, you know, only time she really, like she didn't even talk to us. The only time she really spoke to us if she needed something for a grant report. And, and, I, and that kind of baffled me. And also like, I come from a program background, right? Like I, like I have a, a master's in education so I understand program development evaluation. So when I came into this, like, if I don't know what's going on in the program, if I don't understand the need of the community, if I don't understand the need of the staff, like, how am I even fundraising for them? So I think that, you know, you really, the role of the fundraiser is not only to schmooze with people to get money, but it's also to really be grounded in the work of the organization that you're working in so that you can actually make that connection. I feel like in any organization that I work in, the first thing that I look at is what they do. Because if I'm not passionate about that cause, then it makes it really hard for me to drive home that messaging. Um, so I feel like the role of a fundraiser is to, to first be passionate about the people that you are serving. I 100% agree. I think the first fundraising role I had didn't work out very well because we were very far distanced from the mission. We were a research mm-hmm. organization. So the folks that were directly touched by what we were doing 
were were out of touch for me. I didn't have the opportunity to see it. I didn't have the opportunity to learn about it. And going into a direct services organization, I was incredibly lucky that the program director there really encouraged me to be involved mm -hmm. in programs. And we were a smaller office, so clients were around all the time. They knew who I was. They knew what I did. They stopped in a lot. I, um, I ended up being a de facto babysitter sometimes because our <laughs> folks had like really little, little ones that would kind of okay. wander around while they were meeting with their case manager. And I would be like, Oh, so cute. Let me take them. <laughs> and then I would just sit with them playing, like pounding on my keyboard for an hour while I was doing work and their parent was being counseled. Um, so I think that made it a lot easier for me to really get in touch with the mission and since then i've had the same feedback that you know no one came and learned about what we do before you or nobody ever spent this much time with programs before you were here and i'm not a saint i could make more time <laughs> to meet our program participants and see what's going on with our programs but i do try to make it a priority and it seems like that's not a thing that happens often in fundraising it's not and i think that that causes a, a disconnect and some of that disconnect aligns with privilege, um, but it also creates the problem of the story, right? Because if you are spending your time more so with the funders and not with the recipients or the people doing the work, then what story are you actually telling to get those dollars? It seems more like you're placating to the needs and the wants of the donor than the needs and the wants of the people. And I think that you know, in our, in that podcast that we did with Jason, like we really had that full conversation of, you know, who owns the story. And I think that, you know, historically, traditionally funders have always told a story to appease the donor. Mm -hmm. It's never been raw. It's never been real uh, because it's always that fear that, you know, they might not agree. They might not understand like what is going on to a point where they want to give. So they tell them something that they want to hear and they give them, I don't want to say rewards, but you know, they, they, they yeah. give them, they give them rewards. They give them names on buildings and, and, and whatever else the case may be um, to get that. And I think that that does a disservice personally. Yeah. And I think as fundraisers, part of our role is teaching the donors what's acceptable, what's not acceptable, what kinds of information they should be expecting to receive versus mm -hmm. what kinds of information is maybe not okay for them to be asking for. And I think a lot about the way we tell stories and how folks get so into the sob story part of the story that they can't focus on mm -hmm. the resilience, the strength, the, you know, courage that it took someone to go from where they may have been to where they are now. And that's not, yes, the organization helped that person to get where they are, but that that's on the person that like right. really took the drive and the courage and the, you know, strength to get where they are. And when you're telling their story to a donor and all you're talking about is the sob story of where they were when they first engaged with your organization, they're not seeing that person as a person. They're seeing that person as a statistic and they're mm -hmm. seeing that person through lots of assumptions and lots of biases. And it really, I understand the impetus to make the donor understand how bad it was so that they can understand how great the person is doing now, but it shouldn't be that way. Like you shouldn't have to tell the story that way. You shouldn't have to paint a really dire picture 
for someone to know that a human being was suffering and now they're not suffering. Like, they- well, you know what that is, right? Like, you know, it goes back to that whole savior complex, right? Mm-hmm. Like they want to feel as though they're saving. And when you put a face, when you put direct issues to it, mm-hmm. it allows for them to feel that way when it becomes too broad mm-hmm. and they actually see the issue, which is often systemic. It's like, how can I, as one person writing this one check or whatever the case may be, however many checks, like, how can this fix the, the system? Mm-hmm. So, you know, you gotta, they, they ground it, but the real problem is, is that it's systemic. It's one person in a community and these dollars are going to help this community. It's going to help a number of constituents. Uh, you know, we always used to joke cause we would have this like we call them like the poster child, right? Like that child had gone on, had graduated and it's still the same kid because they had the best story. And it's like, what about the stories after them? Were we not doing our job well enough so that we can actually put another child up, a different child? But you know, that was the one that resonated the most. That was the one that got people to open up their purse strings. And I think that that's a problem. That's, That's that teachable moment where you have to say like, Yes, it's systemic. Yes, it's a community of these people, but this is the impact that you can have, you should be having. I run into that too, where like it's the same story over and over and over for years. And this person's like a fully grown adult now, and the youth organization is still talking about them. Um, but also the cherry picking bothers me a little bit because mm-hmm. regardless of how presentable you think this person is, they still went through your program. They still got the same benefits as everyone else. They can still articulate how it helped them. And, you know, they may not visually look like somebody you think is going to inspire a donation, but is it fair to always put it on the shoulders of like one program participant instead of love a little bit? And empowering all of your program participants to tell their stories and not just those that you think will be likable. I was just taking a poll of nonprofits and we were talking about qualitative versus quantitative data. And a majority of nonprofits are like, we believe in qualitative, mm-hmm. which is great. But if your qualitative data is focusing on this one kid, mm-hmm. if it's focusing on this one situation, you know, how are you really getting to the root of the problem, to your mission that you're trying to actually impact? So we talk about what, what wasn't working as the role, but if we could go forward and say, this is, this is what the role should be. What should the role of a fundraiser be? I really think the role of a fundraiser, you're the mouthpiece for your organization. So you have to have the integrity and you have to really think about what you are putting out there. And you also have to be cognizant that not all of your donors are going to be in the same place. So Mm -hmm. there's education opportunities with all of your donors, regardless of who they are and what they might like for you to teach them a different way. You know, maybe you're not sending information the same way they've always received it. Maybe you're sending different stories than what they're used to getting. But -hmm. if you explain why you're doing it the way you're doing, what you're doing, it builds a closer relationship with your donor. And it also helps them to move beyond that donor-centric model of fundraising where they have all the power (laughs) and move closer to a community-centric model where the power is with the people who are being helped. And that is really where it should be because they're the ones that need the help and they're the ones that the funding is going to go to support. So they should be at the center of that model. So I feel as though like, and I, and I wholeheartedly believe, but chicken or the egg, because I feel like in order for the fundraiser to successfully operate in that role, there has to be an entire cultural shift of the organization. Mm -hmm. Because even though 
you're the you're the fundraiser, you're the DOD or the chief fundraising officer, whatever your title is, you still answer to an executive director, CEO, you still answer to a board. And the data that you have is only as good as the data that you're given by the program staff. So where does the ED, the head, where does the staff, like, where do they come into that? And I know we're going like off topic because we're supposed to talk about the fundraiser, but like as a fundraiser, I can only, I can only showcase what I'm given and I can only operate as I'm allowed to. We are the middlemen in so many ways. I think fundraisers are really bridging the gap between so many different parties. Um, Mm -hmm. And it makes it hard for us to keep up with everything that we're supposed to be doing and also hard to make any changes because we are, you know, beholden to several different parties and in doing different things. And, you know, we want to make sure our executive director is happy. We want to make sure that the board has what they need. We want to make sure that the donors are still feeling inspired to give, but we also want to make sure the staff have the resources they need and the clients are getting what they need out of it. And they're being treated respectfully through the process. Ooh. And it's a whole, it's a whole thing. <laughs> a whole and and we're thing. right there in the middle. That's like, right. for us, we are really holding all of those pieces together. So it takes a lot of education all around. You know, if your executive director is not on board, maybe start there and start talking with the executive director, sharing materials about the different ways that they can be doing this. Think about your funders and trust-based philanthropy and how you can start talking to them about that model and you know maybe any changes they're making or any changes that you can make with your relationship with them to build more trust and you also have to be thinking about donors and then you have to be thinking about your clients and your staff because they really have to be on board too and I think you probably went through this as well but if the staff aren't used to seeing the fundraising person ever then they're not going to trust you and they're not going to know that you are going to treat their client's story in a respectful way. So there's a lot of trust building that goes into that too. And it can take a long time for the staff to trust you enough to put you in front of the clients. And then you have to build trust with the clients so that they're comfortable with you sharing their story. We have a lot to do as fundraisers. <laughs> I think. We have uh, miles to go before this journey is over and we're juggling all those balls at once, but yeah. it's not just us. It, it kind of has to be us educating all of those that are in our cycle per se mm-hmm. and trying to push everybody forward. No, that's a, I mean, that's a really good point. I mean, it is a... It is a big education effort um, on, on many levels. And the uh, trust-based philanthropy project, they were running a series. I think there's still, there's like one or two left. Um, it's called the Ethos Series. And I've been sitting in on them and participating. And it's really focused on the foundation side, right? Really moving towards a trust-based philanthropy, philanthropic giving effort and what your role is as a funder within that space. And you know some of the... I'll say experts are the ones that are already in that movement. One person said the experts are the people on the ground and oftentimes in organizations, we want to see the people who have been impacted by that problem actually running and being integral into those organizations. And I think that that's key on our end or as the, on the organizational end is that we're not coming to this as we know what the problem is, we know what the solutions are, but we really have to make sure that the voice of the people that we're serving are really part of that. So it's not just even 
always listening to the program data because you don't know how they're, you don't know how biased those questions are to, to meet metrics or whatever the case may be, but it really has to be the onus on us as the fundraiser when we're writing grants and trying to go out and get stories that we just speak directly mm-hmm. to the constituents. Uh, and, I'll, and I'll just say this plainly, it might be a little bit easier for me in some instances um, as a person of color to have those conversations and build that trust than it might be for you as someone who is not. So, and, and vice versa, depending on who the constituency is and even what they've gone through. So there's a lot of work that everyone needs to do, but as a fundraiser, I guess the first thing is starting with yourself you know, removing those biases, removing those barriers, really understanding that while you're there, a private organization that's doing a work, what your organization might be doing might not be right. And you really got to go back to the community itself to understand what is needed. That way you're really telling a real story, right? Because oftentimes in grant reports now, they're like, what were your learnings? (laughs) And oftentimes there are no learnings because it's like, oh, well, that just didn't work. You know, we're, we're going to try something different, but why didn't it work, right? Like what conversations did you have to really understand why it didn't, didn't work? And those are the stories that we need to be telling and they have to come from the horse's mouth. Definitely. And I think too, one thing I've started to do a little bit more is share my experience as a way of sharing a client story. So mm-hmm. It's not necessarily that you always have to be sharing the clients themselves and making them Mm. themselves out there. But, you know, if you are interacting with a client and you have a positive interaction or whatever, I mean, passion, exactly. I, um, I run with a nonprofit, uh, group that supports people experiencing homelessness here in Philadelphia. And it's also a running group. And I tell the story all the time, but I was training for my very first marathon and I had back-to-back run days. We had a long run on a Saturday and then we had a race on a Sunday. And the Bless race you. was, yeah, uh, the, <laughs> the race was for the organization that I work for and everyone at work knows I'm a runner. So of course they were like, well, we'll, we'll man the table. You run because you're a runner. And in the back of my brain, I'm like, I don't want to run. I ran 15 miles yesterday. I don't want to run anymore, (laughs) but they, they really, they were really into it. And I was still pretty new and I was trying not to, you know, let anybody Mm -hmm. down. So I was like, yeah, yeah, I can run three miles. And inside I was slowly dying. And I'm just to the point where like, there's a turnaround and I can either keep going on the course or I can slowly sneak back to the table and not let anybody (laughs) know that I didn't finish the race. And I hear somebody behind me just say, let's go girl. And I turn around and it's one of my running teammates from the running group that I run with. Mm. And he also ran 15 miles the day before. I have no idea how he got signed up for this race, but I would not have finished the race if not for him sticking behind me the whole way and telling me all of the history of all of the war statues at the please touch, you know, Memorial Mm -hmm. Hall area. Um, And do I need to give you his backstory of what he went through and how he got to be part of the running group? No, absolutely not. All you need to know is that I was not going to make that run that day, (laughs) if not for him. And that's the power of the running group right there is it doesn't matter who you are or what your background is. There are days that you just need the support of other people. And that's it. That's all that you need to know in order to understand that program and to want to donate to it. Hopefully Um, it's called back of my feet if you want to donate. But anyway, (laughs) that's something that I've been looking to do a little bit more of is how I can share my own story and my own interactions and my own experiences in a way that highlights what the programs do or how our clients are helped. 
so that I'm not constantly putting the client out there and making them re-traumatize themselves by sharing their story over and over and over again. And some people can handle that, but some people can't. And you might not know who can handle it and who can't until it's happened and you put them in a bad situation. So yeah. And you know, and it just makes me think of, you know, next month's topic, which is events, Mm -hmm. but you know, doing events and making kids and people basically dance for their food, right? Like putting them on display so that you can get donors to come out and some people might enjoy that, but also in a way, like you're really taking advantage of people. So it is a delicate balance between traumatizing, re-traumatizing someone, really just getting a generic story of theirs that's, you know, and you really showcasing your own personal passions and Mm -hmm. alignment to what is actually going on. Yeah. Dancing for your food is definitely a whole concept. It's a whole thing. And as fundraisers, I would encourage us to learn what that is and then get away from it because it's so true. I have donors ask if it would be okay to have a client come to a meeting. I have, you know, a group of young professionals that are having happy hour that want to have a client come and talk about their experience. We have funders who want to have clients participate in the funder meeting. It's, it's a constant desire. And I understand, like, I really get the desire to talk directly to the people who are served by the program. But at the same time, it really does feel a little bit like forcing our clients to jump through hoops in order for us to continue to get funding. And to showcase their pain and put it on display, their struggles when they're just trying to be a normal person having a drink one night. (laughs) Right. Like I'm just trying to, I'm over here trying to live my life, but hold on, let me stop and go and share my trauma story again for the 50th time, because there's another funder that demands that we have a client at one of our meetings. So it's definitely, it's almost like a tightrope walking challenge as a fundraiser. You're trying to juggle all of the varying needs and do a lot of education. And also at the end of the day, keep your job and hit your fundraising goals. (laughs) But I think that really goes back to the understanding the issue. So that way, when you're telling these stories and like, yes, you've gotten information from the client, you've gotten it from the program, but there are systemic issues in our community mm-hmm. that are that are happening that are causing us to have to do what we do mission-wise, organization-wise. And I think that if we are educating ourselves mm-hmm. as to what that is and how the work that we do impacts it, it's easier to tell stories. It's easier to go to a funder and not put a particular person on display or not just keep reshowing this poster child because your story is actually on a community level now, right? It's on an organizational level about what you're really trying to do and what you've actually done. Exactly. And I think this is the thing that I will call the traditional fundraising experts don't really talk about. Um, So we've got a lot of folks who are fundraising experts, fundraising gurus, whatever you want to call them, and whatever appropriations come along with those terms. Uh, But they, they kind of tout being an expert in one area of the field or an expert in fundraising in general. And that's who a lot of us first look to when we're looking for resources and you go search, you know, nonprofit experts or fundraising tactics or fundraising strategies, you get the same people pop up over and over again who are considered experts. They don't talk about any of this stuff. They talk about how to write an engaging appeal letter and in that how How to write write an awesome thank you note. Yeah. And then in those thank you notes, they encourage you to perhaps 
tell stories that are unethical or perhaps put your clients in uncomfortable situations. And you don't really realize how much of that content you're ingesting and processing, especially as a white Mm -hmm. fundraiser who is not taught (laughs) to inherently recognize those things that I think um, some of those traditional fundraising talents are kind of coming under fire lately. And I think it's justified to question their expertise and Mm -hmm. And, and what they're telling us to do as fundraisers. I mean, but let's even understand what expert means, right? Because we've both raised money. We've raised millions of dollars. And I don't know, because you've been doing this for X amount of years and in your entirety raised X millions, hundreds of millions, whatever dollars, like there's no actual fundraising degree. Mm-hmm. There's no real training. I mean, there are things there's like... Um, you know, there's CFREs and there's like the Lily school, there's things like that where you can go to, but there's no, like, this is the right way to do it. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes when I look at those programs, I've been just kind of taken aback because I'm like, well, that's not stupid to me. Or that sounds macro, micro aggression, racist to me. And, I, and I've never been able to really, like I signed up to get a CFRE and I was there qualified. And then I really thought about it. And I was like, I raised $7 million plus this year without a CFRE. Why spend the money? I hate mm-hmm. taking tests. <laughs> why, why go through it? And I'm not saying that you shouldn't because some people might need that foundational understanding. Again, I got my background coming from business development, mm-hmm. being able to reach out to an individual and, and sell them on my passion around why they should work with me, why they should give to me, give to this organization is something that I can do. And I never had a problem doing, but I don't know how we, how we determined who were experts and why we listen to them because a lot of, because claimed, Oh, that's, you know what? I'd never even thought that proclaimed expert. Because when you look right, when you look at the conferences, when you look at those are the people who are always speaking, mm-hmm. like they're always being brought in and they're always being highlighted. And you're like, that doesn't work anymore. Like that didn't work for me. And I've been successful. So because I did it differently, I'm not an expert. Yeah. That's a conversation we're having at our local AFP chapter level. Uh, there is a so-called expert in fundraising that we might have been thinking about having speak and had to not after this, this person was so-called canceled by fundraising Twitter. Um, but when the, you know, the, the committee's first response to, well, what are we going to do now is they wanted to bring in someone else who has a following and could sell tickets and was Mm. well known. And that conundrum bothers me. And we're going to talk mm. about special events next month. And I think that conundrum plays into a lot of how fundraising events are run because, mm. you know, if you have a celebrity, obviously you're going to sell out. No, that's right. not true. Spoiler alert, not true. Right. Um, but Especially I think tickets are outside of the equity capacity of the people that you want there sometimes. Exactly. But as we're kind of thinking through like keynote options and just speaker, speaker options in general, we're pretty white chapter in terms of our members and our representatives and volunteer governance positions. And I don't know that we've ever sat down and asked our 
fellow fundraisers who are not white, why they don't participate, why they're not members, what it is that we're not bringing to them that would be valuable. And I've started to have some of those conversations and I've heard a lot of what you just said, which is the things that we offer from the experts right. aren't really that helpful and don't help you to do your job. And why would you spend for a membership that is not actually helping you do your job? So we're doing a lot of, we're doing a lot of thinking. <laughs> we're doing a lot of recalibrating because you're right. Who decides these people are the experts who put them on that pedestal? Who decided? I just think, so it's that, but it's also, it's just like the status quo, right? And I don't know if it's a fear to step into the unknown and to do things differently and to not get those tickets sold. But, you know, I attended a conference in the fall and I'm, I'm an AFP member. I rejoined uh, last year. And, you know, I attended a conference and it, it baffled me that it was a focus on diversity mm -hmm. and, and, and fundraising and the lack of diversity of the speakers mm -hmm. was like, was baffling to me. And I'm like, what's going on? But then also there were a lot of just old people mm -hmm. and I'm really trying to understand, okay, these are the experts in quotations, mm -hmm. but if you're trying to change the way we fundraise and you're trying to change the way we think about this sector, you cannot bring in the people that have been perpetuating the current state of philanthropy and fundraising for the last 20, 30 years. Mm -hmm. Like not all of a sudden overnight, they did not just change. What they did overnight was realize that there's a change coming and they shifted the way they presented mm -hmm. so that they can get onto the circuit and still be proclaimed as an expert and put it on their resume. This is unbelievable that you thought that not like there were no younger diverse people who are making ways. And I can think of some mm -hmm. excluding myself right now, at the top of my head that are doing things that could have spoke. And I'm just like, but you wanted just to go with the old heads that have been doing this traditional nonsense for the last whatever years and created the problem that we're currently in. I think that's where I'm at too, is I'm sick of the conversation being there aren't any. I right. just in, in life in general, whenever somebody says I want more diversity and the answer is there isn't anybody it's bullshit, frankly, <laughs> it's just bullshit. They're, they're there. And I think a lot of times, especially with fundraising, y'all are just chugging along, doing your jobs. You don't want to take on extra work by being an AFP committee member because y'all are doing enough already. And that's why we as white fundraisers who congregate in membership clubs like that, don't know you exist, but it doesn't mean you don't exist at all. Like you're out but there. You know what? It's not even just that. So one, it's not even about that because there's people like you who, you know, might not be diverse, but get it right. Like, why didn't you speak? It has nothing to do with being busy. Like, yes, we are busy, but also we don't want to be the, oh, well, on behalf of all black fundraisers, what do you think? Like, we're not like, we don't want that. We don't want that. We don't want to bang our head on the walls. Like you guys, this is not, this is the same. Why, why am I here? I'm wasting my time. Yeah. And so it's hard trying to be the first in that space because we know that we're going to be looked to for all the answers or all the knowing. And that's tiring. That's, that's exhaustive. It is. And I have a friend uh, that I recently co-presented with on, um, diversity in fundraising and diversity in hiring. And I, I can't remember the exact title of our presentation, but something about, is it lip service or is your organization actually doing mm -hmm. it? Mm -hmm. And we, while we presented it together, the majority of the content came out of her brain. And I just 
typed it out as she was talking and then turned it into a presentation. And then during the presentation, I, I feel like she gave a lot more than I did because she mm -hmm. personally has experienced a lot of what we were talking about. And it wasn't even high level stuff. It was, are you ready to hire a diverse person? If you're going to bring a pers the person right. who's not like you onto your team, are you ready for that? Do you, are you going to be able to stand up against, if, if you hire a black woman and someone stomps into her office and tries to touch her hair without permission, are you as the boss who hired that person willing to go in and say, no, we don't touch people's hair. Because or let me back up because my hair is natural and I just get it blown straight. And in the summertime, that's nonsense. It's humidity, it gets frizzy. And I'm like, you know what? I just want to put braids in my hair. I was literally told you are black enough dealing with the mainline crowd. Do you really want to make it harder on yourself? And I'm like, one, whoa, I was not expecting that as a reaction coming from someone above me who was also black. But then two, it's like, why can I not be authentic? Yeah. Why can I not be me? Like, why do I have to tease them visually? Like I'm not walking in there with raggedy clothes. Like I'm not walking in there with gook in my hair, all crazy. Like I am still presentable, but because I want to put braids in my hair for a month in the summertime, it's like, no, you're black enough. So I think that it's not even just, will you stand up for them if someone touches their hair, but if they're coming to the table professional, they're coming to the table, educated, able to do their job. Are you going to stand up for them mm -hmm. in their authenticity? Exactly. That was a lot of what we talked about. And, and it was very revealing to some of the people we presented to. And some of the people just kind of sat in the back and went, yes, over and over and over <laughs> again. Um, but it was a lot for my co-presenter friend to put herself out there on the line to share her experiences and really candidly share the kinds of things that she's had to go through. And also at the end of the presentation, I got a lot of kudos. She got some. <laughs> But still, it baffles my brain that I hear feedback about how great my co-presenters were on like a single email chain. And I think it was a little bit better on that presentation than it was when you and I have done some stuff together where somebody will call me and be like, oh my God, I loved everything Monique had to say. I'm like, that's great. Did you want to tell Monique that? Or did you just, <laughs> did you just want to tell me? Um, so oh. yeah. I, when, when we're thinking about diverse presenters, I thought that was a, not because I presented it, but because the topic itself was something that really resonated with people. If you have valuable content, that should be all that matters. Like if people are walking away feeling like they learned something and they're in more enlightened as a result of what they're learning from you, shouldn't that be all that matters? Does it matter if I have 10,000 Twitter followers? Cause I don't. It doesn't because, because nine times out of 10, I don't even follow those people. Like I'm just, I'm going to this conference because I feel as though the conference itself brings value. I feel as though the topics, and I, that's what I look at. I look at the topics and the takeaways. What are the outcomes that I'm walking away with? And mm -hmm. if I feel as though it's something that is going to be helpful for me, I don't care who's presenting it. I'm going mm -hmm. to attend because there's been plenty of presentations where I've attended and it's been a rock star. And I was like, that was a waste of time or they're just selling their next book and they really like, I'm not buying the book. <laughs> this was a sales pitch. It is really interesting. And I, and I never even thought about the self-proclaimed expert. Okay. Like I, I never really thought it was like, oh, they said they're an expert and everybody else picked up on it. And they've got a ton of followers who believe that they're experts because they put it in their bio and now everyone wants to hire. I'm going to start putting expert in my bio. I honestly think that's how it happened. And it didn't occur to me that that is how it happened until I was, I started following Vule. 
who refuses to label himself an expert and refuses to kind of self-determine what his, you know, expertise is or may be. Mm-hmm. And he's very humble about, you know, speaking in general. And as I was watching him, I was like, huh. So none of these other people do that. They all say, I am the expert in acquisition. I am the expert in stewardship. I'm the expert at asking. And I think they just made it up. I think they just made it up. I don't think it's real. That's crazy. I never even thought of that. Or they manifested it. I mean, it is real now. Like but- you're speaking it. Into, you're right. You're speaking into existence. I put it there, but that's the same thing. I, I self-proclaimed. Mm-hmm. And now everyone's thinking that I am to now that I am now I'm getting, I've got all these followers. Now mm-hmm. I'm being asked to speak. Wild. So in terms of fundraisers and our role, are there particular resources that have helped you that maybe are outside of the status quo or are there particular things that you would recommend folks look into? I mean, of late, you know, there are, books that I've read that kind of shifted my whole perspective on moving beyond philanthropy, definitely decolonizing philanthropy, definitely, definitely winners take all, um, really understanding the vicious cycle of, of money, of fundraising, of, of donors, of stewardship. I think that really brings home what the stories that traditional philanthropy perpetuates. Um, that, that's those are two books I think everyone should read and I also think that everyone should be looking at community-centric fundraising and the trust-based philanthropy project yeah I get a lot out of the community-centric fundraising blog I'm less mm-hmm. of a book reader I I really like to read books just books that take me away from real life not books that take me right back to work again right um so my husband I, yells at me because I read TV like I I'm not gonna get into what books but I read books that are just like he's like how can you read that I'm like because it doesn't take much to read it and it's exactly. enjoyable and exactly be done <laughs> I just get to escape my brain for a few hours while I read this book uh yeah so I lean more towards blogs and stuff like that so community-centric fundraising is definitely one that I lead towards I mentioned Vule he does nonprofit AF as a blog which is also really helpful but I've also just been observing a lot in a nonprofit centric group on Facebook, nonprofit happy hour. I feel like I've mm-hmm. mentioned that before, but I'm like a fly on the wall there. And I watch conversations and there was one the other day, somebody brought up um, the Derek Chauvin trial and had like a nice long post about it, really good post. But my immediate reaction was, why is this here? This is a group about nonprofits. Why is this post here? And then I started to read the comments and the comments were maybe one out of 10 people saying what I said. And the rest of them were people saying, this has everything to do with nonprofits. This has everything to do with racial justice. This has everything to do with equity. This has everything to do with what we stand for as nonprofits. And of course I immediately was like, I stand corrected. I was, I was really wrong. This does have everything to do with nonprofits, but there were people in the thread who dug their heels in and insisted like this, this is not a space for this. And that really opened my eyes to how many people are out there who are in nonprofits who really don't understand what nonprofits are for. Right. So conversations like that, I think are definitely eye-opening for me. And it took me a long time to get to a place where I can read and immediately think, oh, I was wrong. Cool. Let's move on. Uh, Cause initially I would 
be that person who dug in their heels and say like, no, 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 this is a nonprofit only space. This has nothing to do with nonprofits. Um, so I, I feel like I've learned a lot from that. So if you're not so much a book reader, I would mm -hmm. recommend joining the group or reading one of those blogs. See, it, took, it took me a while to get, to, well, Decolonizing Philanthropy, I think I read like quickly. Mm -hmm. Winner Takes All, it took me a while because it was just, it was more work, mm -hmm. right? Um, so I, I was reading it more for work. Um, but yeah, I totally agree. And just two things on that, on the, on the Derek Chauvin trial is like, one, we as nonprofits are here because socially, systemically, there is an issue mm -hmm. and our mission is to help alleviate some part of that issue. Mm -hmm. Um, and advocacy has to be part of that. And, you know, maybe that's, that's another, that's a whole other episode because <laughs> like the dirty a word nonprofits are scared of it because they don't want to get in trouble they don't want to do it wrong you don't want to get dinged but also what is happening in in legislation what is happening in our communities impacts the work that we do for good or for bad mm -hmm. so we have to actually focus on those things because it impacts our communities right if you're i don't know how many times you know we're in philadelphia the gun violence here is out of effing control yep. and when we have students that are getting killed, when we have family members that are getting killed, we now have to bring in trauma experts mm -hmm. to help our students. It was an education organization, but because of the impact that it has, because it then hinders their learning, because it hinders their focus, like all of these things are, are just aligned in a way that really impacts our work for good or for bad. So we have to be abreast of them. I'm not, I didn't see that conversation, <laughs> um, or I probably saw and was like, I am not getting into that and just kind of skip. Probably. <laughs> yeah. And then, and then there's people like me who are like, what is this dude? Like, I, I think it was just a gut reaction to like, had I thought about it a little bit more, I'm sure I would have put two and two together, but it's that initial gut reaction that reveals all the biases that are still baked into my brain. Right. Like that, my first initial reaction was like, oh, what is that doing here? Totally but belongs you know, but, there. But the thing is, is that and I feel like I have to go read it to even have this conversation, <laughs> but when you think about social injustice and even what happened that caused the trial, right? Yeah. And how much money flowed into social social justice organizations and even ones that were not direct, like social justice as in education, mm -hmm. as in the bail funds, as in po poverty and housing, like yeah. all of the things that were a result of social injustice. Um, it gets it gets really deep. You know, I was having a conversation recently with uh, a giving circle in Minnesota and we and we didn't even click we didn't we didn't know exactly where in Minnesota so we started talking about the trial she's like we're the home of George Floyd and she was like in so much money was so, so much money was coming to us that we were like no mm -hmm. there are actually people doing this work please redirect these donations because I mean even in Philadelphia I'm a member of the Philly Black Giving Circle Mm -hmm. We did a funding round around social injustice with a goal of raising 50. We raised way more than that. But when I tell you, we got dollars from 86 different cities in mm -hmm. multiple countries. We got donations from London. Mm -hmm. People see the need and they see the organizations have to do something about it because for some reason our government isn't. That's a whole other conversation. So I'll, <laughs> I'll leave it there. We'll leave it there. <laughs> I think that's a good place for us to end though. So as fundraisers, there's a lot... You're, you're juggling a lot of balls. 
and you're doing a lot a of lot. things, but also there's a lot just to be aware of, I think yeah. in general about how nonprofits have come to be and why they exist and what kinds of things are considered nonprofit related and what kinds mm -hmm. of things aren't. Spoiler alert, everything is nonprofit related. I have to keep bashing it into my head. So I'm right <laughs> there with you, but it's, it's just a lot for us to juggle as fundraisers. And there are sources that claim to be experts who maybe are not the best folks to be looking at, or at least in our opinion, are not the best folks to be looking at. And in order to move beyond philanthropy and beyond the traditions that we currently have, we as fundraisers really just have to sit back and think about who we consider experts and where we're getting our information from and what we see our roles as in our right. organizations. Because our traditional, you know, talk to rich people, get money roles that everybody thinks we do is just the tiniest sliver of what we actually do. And not only just talking to rich people, make sure you're talking to the community um, because there are dollars there. But I think that within your role, educating yourself, getting grounded in what your purpose is and what the work is you're actually trying to fundraise for, I think is the best start of all. Because being able to be grounded in that understanding allows you, one, to have a better story to tell and really understand where you need to go to for further guidance if you need it. Well stated. <laughs> With that, we will leave you for this month and we are so excited to talk to you about special events next month. So- And what not to do. <laughs> there are so many things not to do with special. There are not a lot of to-dos, there are just a lot of not to-dos. So <laughs> we'll be sharing those with you next month and we look forward to talking to you then. This has been Beyond Philanthropy. Thanks guys.